Welcome to the Pattern Podcast from KXC in London. As a church, we want to learn ways of being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did in order to see the city we love transformed. This podcast is a resource to help us explore these spirit-filled patterns of living and start putting them to practice every day. On this episode, we explore the practice of liberation. We had an incredible conversation with Selena Stone, a lecturer in political theology, who's just recently finished researching her PhD on consciousness, hope and power, looking at Pentecostal political engagement in Britain. She has a background in community organizing, running local campaigns, training leaders and developing congregations so they can engage in issues of justice in their local community. We started by asking, what is the practice of liberation? And we're totally blown away by her insights. It's so good to have you. Um, just to kick us off, what is liberation and why is it important as followers of Jesus that we engage in this practice? I think um, liberation is is at the core of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. So I think it's quite clear, even on several levels, that liberation is essential to what it means for us to know Jesus and for us to serve him. So I think about liberation um, on a personal level um, in terms of our relationships. I think about liberation from sin and from death you know, and the achievement of Christ on the cross, which is something that we believe in as Christians. But I also think about liberation as something that is beyond the personal. Um, So beyond kind of moral questions to think about actually our social and our political life. What does freedom from oppression look like in um, our social and political life? So freedom from sin is not just a personal thing, which I think is what liberation is about, that freedom and liberation from oppression and sin. Um, And that isn't just a personal thing, but it's something that transcends communities, our social life and our political life as well. Why why do Christians not engage with this? What are the barriers that stop them from engaging in those political, social, etc. things? I think some of it is that we are in a culture that it's very individualistic. So we think about, even in our own faith, we think about sin as something very personal. Um, And we think about the redemption of Jesus as for my own personal sins. And we don't often think about sin as social and political. So when we think about freedom and liberation and kind of righteousness, that also becomes personalised and we think about our personal relationships. But I think if we thought about um, Jesus's work on the cross as freeing us from sin socially, that would also involve us following Christ into that arena of engaging in social issues. So I think the kind of breaking down of the individualism of our culture, which seeps into our faith as well, would actually allow us to engage more with these kind of systemic questions. And I also think that it's very costly, the work of liberation and social justice work in general. It costs a lot and it's quite uncomfortable. If you actually become awake and alert to a lot of the systems that are at work in our communities, it can make you very uncomfortable to be alert to it and awake. To see injustice and oppression in so many different ways can be really uncomfortable if you're used to living in a world where everything is genuinely quite okay for you. And so to suddenly become alert to that can be really um, can be really difficult to suddenly realise the world isn't what you initially thought. Um, so that can be a thing. And also, I think the costliness of it comes with the fact that justice can't just be about words and discussion. It has to be about action, which I think is what we're going to talk a lot about today. That actually... Um, you can't be content to just identify injustice and just point to it and say, oh, that's terrible. If you really recognise it and you see it as something theologically wrong with our society, then it, you have to act and that costs something. Um, and it costs something if you're in the position where you genuinely benefit from the world as it is, because it kind of disturbs privilege and it means that you can't simultaneously hold on to your privilege and also try to rectify injustice. 
um, it, it demands a reordering of things. And I think that's what the kingdom is talking about when Jesus talks about the kingdom. And, you know, the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. If that kingdom actually comes, it's going to upset the apple cart. It's going to mean that there's going to be a completely different order of things. And I think that's the bit of it that becomes uncomfortable and costly. Why sometimes, although we like the sound of it, in our heart of hearts, we really just want to keep things as they are. Selena, you mentioned privilege there. Um, I'm a white, middle-class, Western. How do I engage with this whole practice of liberation? Both personally, you mentioned it on a personal level, but then in society with my neighbour, mm-hmm. um, without crossing the line into patronising or into just that sense of um, othering or of or, or, or living out of privilege. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do I engage with this without uh, crossing that line? This is something that we hear more and more is people trying to check their privilege. And I think sometimes it leads to a sense of guilt, which actually just leads to paralysis. And it means that actually it becomes difficult to have conversations if a feeling of guilt comes in and a feeling of, oh, how do I get rid of privilege? And the reality is that you can't. If you're born a white person, you haven't chosen that, you are. If you're born into a middle-class family, you also have been born that, not by choice. So you can't do anything about the privilege that you've been born with. It's just the way that the world works. But actually acknowledging that, means that when you're thinking about engagement, you recognise that the worldview that you come with is not the worldview of everybody that you're going to encounter. Um, And it just means that you're able to recognise that the way that you've experienced the world and the way that you have, um, you know, allowed just, you've been able to progress into certain places that you've kind of gained from a certain privilege that others haven't gained from. And recognising that just means that it kind of shapes the way that you will listen to stories of other people because you realise that actually they're coming from a completely different experience of the world. So I often talk to my friends who are like white and middle class, they want to do something about justice. And I remember saying to one of my friends, we live in, in different worlds. And she didn't understand what I was saying. And she said, no, we live in the same world. And I was like, you don't. Because, for example, we've had like shootings in America recently um, and a lot of unarmed black young people have been shot because people have been afraid of them in hoodies for just because they look threatening in inverted commas. Um, and so my friend who's white will see that on the news and be completely distraught that that's happened and think, how is this happening in 2018? I ask that and think, oh, that could be my brother, actually, if he was in the wrong part of America. Or that could be me or my uncle or my cousin. So there's a completely different experience of the, the kind of lived reality that we're sharing. So we're in the same world but the experience of that is very different. Um, and actually for my friend to recognise that as a white person, she's never had to deal with those realities because actually in most places in the world, she's not going to be seen as a threat. Whereas for me and my brothers walking together in some parts of the world, we will be seen as a threat. So actually the acknowledgement of privilege just means that you're a little bit more sensitive to understanding why somebody will kind of share that story and not see it as, a, as an accusation towards you, but just as a truth of what they've experienced. From my perspective, then, I want to wake up tomorrow mm. and I want to engage with this world differently. I want to engage with compassion and listening to others and seeing others and understanding people who are different from me. But how do I wake up tomorrow and start living life more like that mm. and less from a perspective of privilege and othering? It's about exposing yourself to those realities of people's experience and... And that's why it's uncomfortable because it's it burst the bubble that says the world is genuinely okay and I'm just going to have my coffee this morning and like, you know, go and do whatever and just go on with life in a really chilled out way. 
um, to break that and to enter into the kind of the painful realities of our experience as human beings, you have to get close to where that's happening and allow yourself to be flooded with the brutal realities of what people experience. Because some of the time, I think the defensiveness can be, it's so uncomfortable to hear that the world is like this. And so we'd rather just not have to hear it. And we'd rather talk about other things. But if you want to do something about it, you have to first be able to see it and face it and confess that it's wrong before repentance and transformation can come. And that isn't personal, but as as a culture, as a society. So I think the expert, being willing to expose yourself to the painful reality is, is so crucial. And having a heart that is willing to be open to hearing those truths and to be willing to carry the pain of what that actually means. And that is why it's costly, because it means you can't, you don't wake up the next morning after you've had this morning and you've exposed yourself to these stories. The next morning you wake up, you're going to feel very different to the mm. way you did the morning before. And it's going to change so much about the way that you feel and think and what you become conscious of. And I guess if we're looking at Jesus and all this, which is obviously what we're trying to do and um, follow his way, Mm. we see that all over the Gospels, right? Like Mm. about him being proximate and in relationship with people right across the spectrums of society. Is that that the fundamental thing about proximity then, that we need to become closer to the... Yeah, I think it's... But it's also a heart that's open because there can be proximity... And a kind of forced, like, or natural desire to be close that is easily, you can easily feel that when there's kind of strange, you know, kind of desire to be close for your own benefit. But actually, there's a kind of proximity that is humble and open hearted that allows you to be shaped by the people you're encountering, the stories you're encountering, that changes everything about who you are as a person. And that's the kind of proximity that I think is important. It's not the kind of proximity that's instrumentalising the poor or the oppressed or those who've had difficulties or that's asking them to retell really difficult stories or elements of their lives. That's harmful, but actually it's about forming a natural organic bond with people and being shaped by their experience and taking that as something that's as crucial to you developing love as a prayer time in your church. Because you can't develop love in a bubble with everybody who's like you. It's Or even know Jesus just sitting in your bedroom and praying. Like, you know Jesus because he hangs out in places with people who are random and difficult and messy. And actually, I found Jesus so much in those places, not just in my amazing Pentecostal church growing up. So, yeah, I loved sort of how you were saying, if we engage in this, it will have an impact on us Mm. a bit. You know, as we pray to Jesus, we meet with him, we encounter him, we're shaped. You were saying, as we engage in the practice of liberation, we will encounter Jesus and we will be shaped. Can you say a little bit more about how you think we as individuals might be shaped as we engage in this practice of liberation? Yeah, so I mean, I think that when we talk about liberation, um, we often have a kind of power dynamic in our, in our minds, which is that there are privileged people, there are people underneath them, and liberation is about reaching down mm-hmm. to the people who are not privileged and allowing them to experience something of our lives as privileged people. But I think if we think about it differently, we actually realise that liberation is the work of God and we're all actually on the same level. So the, uh, the work of liberation is about the quote-unquote privilege being liberated as they also are participating in liberation. So they're not actually giving anything to anybody else. They're actually receiving the act of actually listening to your neighbour, of understanding their stories, expanding your own experience. It's expanding your own ability to meet God, to meet God the image of God in your neighbour who is nothing like you and may have come from a completely different place 
And it's allowing you both as brothers and sisters to be made one underneath your father in heaven. So it's not that actually there is a, a kind of a giving of the privilege to the underprivileged. That's liberation is setting both groups of people free. And, and what do you think it will do to the church if it gaze, engages in this practice? What's that the vision that you see <laughs> achieving in a community? I think a church that does this will be nothing that I've ever seen. And that's why I think the exciting thing about this is we don't, really know exactly what this could look like. I mean, there are models of it at different parts of the world where churches have just been radically different because they've chosen to kind of reject a very neat institutional model of church and to actually just experiment with what would it look like if we actually put action at the, at the forefront of our ministry. And so actually, I think that some of the challenges we have are that we, as um, Christians in the West, and I read this the other day, I was reading some liberation theology, and the person saying that actually in the West, what we love is orthodoxy. So we obsess about right belief, but not orthopraxis and right practice. So we think a lot about how do we believe the right things about Jesus, but we don't obsess about how do we act in the right way in the light of Jesus. So we kind of polish what we think, but then we, and we feel satisfied with that. But that doesn't lead to practicing properly what that means, because there's never going to be an end to polishing our doctrine. But actually, if we want to do something, we have to be as committed to practice as we are to what we're believing. And I think churches that can get that balance right of we need to be doing stuff as well. We can't just be feeling happy about our worship team sounding amazing. Like that, I think, has to be crucial. So how do we start to even explore this practice? Well, I think that there's the kind of twofold elements. There's both, you know, in your personal day-to-day life, how do you prepare your heart to be open to people around you who you may actually be afraid of? Because fear is often just associated with un- the unknown. And actually, for, as Christians, as we are seeking to be disciples of Jesus, we know that the perfect love of God casts out fear. So actually, as we commit ourselves to love, we begin to dispel fear of people that are around us. We begin to dispel the fear of what will happen if we like engage with that person. We begin to dispel the myths of, you know, that person's needs and concerns and desires and interests and actually get to know them for who they really are. And I think that's really important. But I also think on a church level, the the power of church is that they're groups of organised people who have the same commitment to the same God in Christ. And actually, the power of that is an agreement to act together on issues that we decide are important. But actually, as a church in a particular locality, you can decide we are going to particularly focus on this particular element of what we see as being an oppression in our community. We're going to take this seriously and make this part of our strategy for the next 5, 10, 15 years to engage with this because this matters. And we know this matters because the people that we've been rubbing shoulders with have told us that part of their story is that this is really an experience of oppression in their lives. And we're going to act together on this. So there's the kind of twofold thing of the power of a church together doing something as a unit and also personally in our individual relationships. That's amazing. And how does it work out for you in your life? It's not just that in terms of your professional life, but but what does it look like? So I think for me, it's, it's, I think I've been so fortunate that my life has involved so much of this. So it's very natural for me now to live in such a way. I've just been attentive in my daily life to the, the stories and the experiences and the cries for help of people who are not like me, who are in some ways experiencing a whole different kind of lack of privilege and disadvantage. And it's actually something that I think 
as I was saying earlier on, it's a very costly way to live because your heart is constantly being pulled by the pain of what people experience in, in this life. And I think it means that I'm constantly thinking about how do I act you know, is that going to be with my friend who set up a charity to try and deal with the whole thing around youth violence and wanted to figure out how do we equip churches to do something about this issue, you know, and sitting with him and helping to form this charity? Is it about, you know, helping my friends who lead churches to think about, you know, how is it that you're going to actually do something that's community focused and not just think about the kind of the life of the people coming into the doors of the church? Um, and it's all in those conversations, just kind of stimulating that thought um, that I think is where I find it. But I don't do enough action. I really want to do more. And if I had it in my way, I would have half my week, I would have a, I would be organising half the week over teaching because I think those two things feed each other really, really well. Um, so, Selena, do you have any stories of where you can kind of put some flesh on that even further of, of what it looks like in life? Yeah, I mean, I think I would... Um, I think the person who illustrated this a lot for me growing up have been my parents and I can think about on our I was in at home in Birmingham over the weekend and saw a woman on our street who um always used to borrow money from my mom and never pay it back and I remember being a young child and thinking why does my mom give her money I want money for ice cream and she'd never give it to me and she'd give money to this lady all the time and I remember my mom telling me a while about the fact that she'd been in a really abusive marriage and her husband was spending all of the money on drink. And she'd come to my mum often to borrow money from her. Um, and this woman from a totally different cultural background. She wasn't somebody who, you know, understood much about my mum's cultural background. And my mum didn't know that much about hers. But they developed a very wonderful friendship. And there were so many moments consistently over the years of me living at home that I'd see this woman in our living room. And my mum would just talk to her and hear her story. And I think she demonstrated for me what being in community was really about. And I think that woman experienced something of a freedom and a peace and she was sitting with my mum that I don't think she experienced much in her day-to-day life. And I think those are those small moments that are actually really significant in the life of so many people. That doesn't take a whole lot of energy, actually, just a, a cup of tea, really, and a smile. Mm, that's amazing. And um, finally, just the final question is, um, something I've frequently heard is of people who engage, start engaging in this stuff, they start going down this journey and then they end up getting overwhelmed and burnt out and you know you're talking about it being a costly journey how do you prepare yourself for the long haul how do you do it for the long haul I think that you it will be impossible if you don't allow yourself to be daily refreshed by Jesus and that is the reality of my experience when I have got overwhelmed by the reality of life I think some of the things I've done is just stopped looking at Twitter and just get like filter out the voices at times because it can be overwhelming and allow the voice of the Holy Spirit to become very loud in my own heart and the voice of the Holy Spirit is is the sweetest and most powerful voice that you can hear when you're faced with the reality of the pain and injustice of our world because he reminds you first of all that your identity is not in what you're doing for justice actually it's just that you're his child and he loves you and also he allows you to have a sense of hope that when you're tempted to be weighed down by pessimism, he reminds you of the work that he's already doing, the work that he's been doing before you were born, the work that he'll keep doing once you've passed on. And so you realise you're just doing your part in this while you're here. It doesn't rest on you. It's not your personal mission. Actually, this is the mission of God and you're simply a participant. And if you can hold on to that while you're in the middle of everything that's going on, 
You just, it allows you to do your part without being overwhelmed. It allows you to take a rest, to have your Sabbath, to go on holiday when you need to, to not feel like you need to give every second of your life to fighting because that takes the kind of energy that nobody has. So that's what I would say would be important is having your rest, remembering that it's God's mission and that you're only doing your part. Selena, this has been absolute gold. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pattern Podcast. If you'd like to explore more spirit-filled patterns of living, head over to pattern.org.uk.